We're going to start into a series in the book of James, and uh, that's what we're going to do here for several months uh, leading up to Easter. And um, as we do that, I want to, as I typically do when I start into a book, uh, spend the first Sunday just talking about a general in- introduction to the book. And this time in particular, I'm going to be introducing both the book, but also the man, James. Um, and so um, I want to do that, but I want to do something uh, that, as far as I know, I, can't, I haven't ever done. I just want to give you a splattering of different verses from James, and I haven't pre-selected them. I think I'm probably going to pick out like the first of every um, passage or so, and, um, and just so that you are reminded of what James is about before I introduce it to you this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. My brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. My brothers, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. With a tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in, the, in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers, this should not be. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle from within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Submit yourselves into God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will draw near to you. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth is ruined and moth has eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver has been corroded. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Is anyone among you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. 
Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Father, this morning we just want to ask, Lord, that you would take this wonderful book of James and use it to speak words of instruction into our lives, that we would heed it, that we would not be just hearers of the word of God, but that we would be doers of the word of God and to put it into practice. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as we go through this journey in the book of James. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each one of us each week about something, Father, that you need to work on in our life and that we would be responsive and commit ourselves to working on that um, in, our, in our effort to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first question is, who wrote the book? Well, the simple answer comes in the first verse of James, where he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you ask, which James? Was it uh, James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee? Well, he died in 44 AD, um, executed in 44 AD, and so he did not live long enough um, for, um, for James to have led the, the Jerusalem council in, in um, Acts chapter 15, so we can rule that out. We also might look at James, the son of Alphaeus, who was another one of the disciples, and we rule that out because there is almost nothing known about James, the son of Alphaeus. Um, and this James was very well known. Uh, um, and, and so that leaves us with James, who is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, you will recall was not a believer in Jesus for a long time. For some 33 years, James did not believe in Jesus as a Messiah. He grew up with him, he watched him, he observed him, but he wasn't going to believe that one. <laughs> and then you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. And it tells us that after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that Jesus appeared to James and then to the apostles, to the other disciples. James then believed, came to faith, and became one of the leaders of the early church and became the leader of the church at Jerusalem. You read Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and you know that he was the disciple. He was one of the disciples that was up in the upper room waiting um, for uh, the day of Pentecost. James is recognized in a number of other books in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 12, James is referred to. Uh, Peter has been in prison 
and he miraculously escapes prison, and he goes to where the believers are praying. You remember that story? They are praying, and they've got the doors bolted, and he goes there, and he knocks, and they're scared to answer it, but they finally let him in, and they see that he's escaped and all of that, because they, they were praying, but they didn't believe God was going to answer their prayers. <laughs> And there he is, right in front of their eyes. God had answered their prayers. And what does Peter tell them to do, that praying group of believers? He tells them, go tell James and the other elders. Go tell James and the brothers. Then you go three more chapters into Acts chapter 15, and you have the story of the Jerusalem Conference, the Jerusalem Council. And you will remember that, you know, at first, the gospel went to Jews. But all of a sudden, there were Gentiles getting converted. Even as soon, shortly thereafter, um, the day of Pentecost. But there were Gentiles getting converted. And the big question is, how, what, what do we expect of these Gentiles who have no Jewish background? The Jews who got converted, the Jews who believed in Jesus, they just continued being Jews, but their Messiah had been found. They knew who the Messiah was. They knew who the Christ was. And the fulfillment of all their Old Testament um, teaching was found in Jesus. But what about these Gentiles? who knew nothing of Jewish practice, Jewish behavior, Jewish lifestyle, knew nothing of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all of that. They didn't know how to live it. They weren't living it. Do we expect them to have to become Jews before they become Christians? That was the big question. And it would be a big question today for us too. If we were all Jews... And all of a sudden, Gentiles started getting converted. What do we do with these people? Do we expect them to jump through all the hoops that we naturally were raised up in? Paul and Peter speak. They propose that the Gentiles have more freedom than the Jews. They propose that the Gentiles have to obey all the moral law of the Old Testament, but they do not have to adopt all the dietary, all the customary um, restrictions and laws <coughs> and regulations in the Old Testament. So they could continue eating pork. They could continue doing some things. They didn't have to wash their hands after all these different things and all the, the different times of the day, all that kind of stuff. They didn't have to do any of that. They had to obey the moral law of Moses. So after that was decided, James is the last one at the council to speak because he's the leader of the church. And James got to set the restrictions after they said, we want them to experience more freedom than Jews have. Then James was the one that set the restrictions and said, these are the four things that a Gentile must do to come to faith in Christ. And he laid them out and said, this is what we expect you to change your lifestyle in these four areas. <coughs> so James does that. James is the one who helped us in that area in Acts. 
Then in Acts chapter 22, Paul is on his third missionary trip and journey. And on that third missionary trip, he report, when he comes back, it says Paul reported to James and the elders who were present. Now, it sounds to me like any time, you know, and I hadn't really ever noticed that before, how many times it says, and they reported to James and the apostles. <laughs> but if you've got Peter and you've got Paul reporting to James, you've got somebody important there. Um, that just struck me this week as I was thinking about that. And then in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul calls James one of the pillars of the church. Now, one of the other things... Thank you, Jacob. One of the other things that you notice about um, is the style of the book of James is very, very similar to Acts chapter 15, where James gives a speech... Um, to the Jerusalem Council, and then James writes a letter to all these Gentile believers and to their churches and tells them the ruling that has come down from Jerusalem um, to the church at Antioch. And there's very similar. It's just the literary style is much the same, so we know they're the same people. Now, so we know who it is. What kind of man was James? Well, he was known to have impeccable character or flawless character. In fact, he was known by the early church as James the Just. He was also known as the bulwark of the people, which means wall of defense. Um, he was a conservative. There was no doubt about that. James was very conservative. And he truly treasured his Jewish um, background um, and culture. And he never gave up any of that to be a faithful Christian. Um, he loved Jesus, and, he, and Jesus was supreme in his life, and when he introduces himself, the only thing he has to say is, I'm a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that comes a long ways from the days when he looked at Jesus and said, we've got to go rescue him from himself. He's gone crazy. <laughs> James had come full circle in his thoughts about Jesus. Now, when you think about Jesus, Jesus was, was always one that kind of struck the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, just crazy because he had just too much freedom. <laughs> Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was not a scribe. He was not a Pharisee in that traditional sense. But James, he gives the appearance of being all of them. He is very conservative he could have been a Nazarite, he could have been a scribe or a Pharisee or a teacher of the law, or he could have been all four of them in one, one setting. Um, he would have swallowed very hard at some of the freedom that Jesus exercised in his earthly ministry. And I kind of think that James probably did. And probably that was part of the reason he had a struggle with who Jesus was until after the resurrection. Sometimes, in our arrogance, I, I kind of think that James was one of those guys that really thought himself better than Jesus <laughs> until he came to faith. And when Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection, all of a sudden that was taken away. But I want to say this, sometimes in our arrogance, when we think ourselves better than other people around us, we miss their beautiful character. 
And for 33 years, James missed the character of the Lord Jesus Christ because he was hung up on how great he was himself. (laughs) And we can do the same thing. So James missed who Jesus was for all that time. Now Eusebius tells us some things about him, which is why I'm telling you that he was conservative. He never took wine. He never took strong drink. He never ever anointed himself with oil. He never shaved. He never bathed. And what they mean by that, it doesn't mean that he didn't use a a hand towel and wipe himself down, but it just means that he never took a bath um, of such. He always wore, and this is odd, you, would, you picture that, and then you picture a man who didn't wear common wool, he only wore fine linen. <laughs> so, so you have a very conservative man with, you know, never shaved, and he's dressed in the finest linen, dignitary linen uh, of the day. And you get the image of this John the Baptist type of person except for his clothes. Josephus, the early church historian, records that when Festus, the governor of um, the Roman governor, died, um, Ananus, the high priest of Jerusalem, decided this is our opportunity to kill off these Jews who have become Christians. And so he assembled the Sanhedrin. He... um, brought James the Just and some of the other believers, or what he called the breakers of the law of Moses, to be accused, and then they found him guilty, and then they stoned him. And so the odd thing is here, you have this man that Martin Luther looked at the, you know, the book of, of uh, James, and it was one of the hardest books for Martin Luther to accept as, as being inspired and part of the canon, because it was just... Um, too works-oriented. And it, it, it would, just it wasn't enough freedom and enough grace in it, and all of that, Martin Luther thought. And, and so you have this man who, from all outward appearances, is this rigid, conservative man who is stoned to death for having too much freedom and breaking the law of Moses. <laughs> and, and just the irony there is incredible. So who was the book written to? It was written to Jews who had become Christians before Gentiles were coming to faith. And specifically, it mentions and references synagogues because at the time this was written, Jews were still meeting in synagogues, and in some of those places, the whole synagogue had come to faith in Christ. So it was a huge problem for Jews. What do we do? We've got whole churches believing in something else that we don't believe in. Whole synagogues. And so he was writing to synagogues where Christians or where Jews had become believers in Christ. And these and other Jews then were were persecuting them, uh, casting them out of the synagogues, uh, scattering them over the face of the earth, running them out. And James is the leader of this church, he's the leader of those Jews. And he feels responsible for all those scattered sheep that are going all over the world. And so he writes this letter to them. And that's the purpose of this writing. Now, when? Obviously, if James was martyred in the year 62, it was written before 62 AD. Um, But secondly, we believe that it was written much earlier than that. 
We also believe that it was written certainly before Acts 15, which um, happened in 49 AD, um, because there is no reference at all to Gentiles coming to faith in the book of James. It is it's strictly a Jewish book, um, Jewish Christian book. There's no reference to the church. There's no reference to anything else. It's just Jews who believe in Jesus. So we believe that this book was written probably somewhere around 45 AD. <coughs> we don't know that for sure. But what that does is it makes James the very first book in the New Testament to be written. Now, when you, um, when you lead somebody to Christ, and people want to know, where do I start reading my Bible at? There are generally two answers that are given. One, the Gospel of Mark, and the other one is the book of James. Makes a lot of sense when you stop and know some of the background there. You get a good, solid, quick introduction to Jesus and Mark. And then you have an instruction manual that was written to Jews on how to live as Christians. Those two books right there. James um, becomes the leader of the church at Jerusalem. And there's nothing found in this whole book um, that talks about Gentiles coming to faith, and I've already mentioned all of that. Um, the other thing is, there is no distinctive Christian um, vocabulary or doctrines taught in the book of James. It's just, this is how you should live as a Christian. But there's no doctrine. There's, um, there's no vocabulary that you have in Peter and in Paul and all of that. It's just plain, ordinary language written to Jews. So, what would you compare the book of James to when you look at it? Well, first of all, if you were to look at the Old Testament, you would compare the book of James to the book of Proverbs. They are very similar in approach. They are both uh, focused on very practical wisdom, and, and they make the statement <coughs> that you and I need to put action uh, in our life of faith. We have to do something with our faith. And so it encourages, uh, pure and simple, for God's people to act like God's people. Uh, imagine that. Pretty simple. That's what James is telling us to do on a day-to-day -day basis. If you were to look at James and then compare it to something else in the New Testament, you would compare it to the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave in Matthew 5 through 7. And I know they're too small for you to read, but I just want you to see the comparisons there uh, from verse to verse to verse and almost identical phrasing and teaching over here by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we don't know again but it's very likely that James was there that day for the Sermon on the Mount. It's very likely that James heard the Sermon on the Mount and was astounded and impressed by it, even though he didn't believe in Jesus. Um, uh, at, but you can just see the, how consistent the Scripture is between what James has to say and what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And you have those two passages in, in the New Testament that are very, very practical, again, in its emphasis. 
So what does James teach? <coughs> First, James the book does these two wonderful things. It blends faith in Christ with true honor for the law of Moses. It takes people who are Jews and it does not ridicule or tear apart. Remember Jesus said not one iota would be taken away. James handles that so well. He blends respect for the Old Testament with faith for Christ. That James, the book, uh, the book James um, does. James the man does something else here. <coughs> he avoids offending Jews who are coming to faith while he also avoids offending Gentiles who are coming to faith. And the two of them are hard to do at the same time. Because if you give Gentiles too much freedom, what are the Jews over here doing? How come I have to do all this stuff and they don't? <laughs> and if you, you know, that, that's an incredible thing that James was able to pull off as a person. He avoided offending the many Jews who were coming to faith while he also avoided offending the Gentiles, and he didn't close the doors on them. He didn't say, hey, listen, if you're going to become a Christian, you've got to go back, and you've got to be a Jew, and you've got to understand everything in the Old Testament, and you've got to put that into practice before you can come to faith in Christ. So he, by, by nature, James could have been a hardliner. But he resisted that temptation, and he was responsible for the rapid um, spread of the Christian faith to the Gentiles uh, in the early church. So what are the key things? First, trials and temptations can result in spiritual maturity. Now I, did, I said can, I didn't say will, because that's a choice that you and I make. We all have trials and temptations. Not all of us grow to maturity through them. But they can. And James says that trials and testings and temptations should cause spiritual maturity in your life. That's their purpose. Now, you and I live in our American uh, version of Christianity where so often we are led to believe that if you and I are Christians, basically God should take away trials and temptations and troubles from our life. Isn't that what we like to believe? That is not the message of James. James does not believe in the prosperity gospel. James says, when you face diverse trials and temptations, when you are under attack, that's an opportunity for you to grow. Don't just assume that just because you're a Christian, God's going to hand you a rosy life. He makes no promises of that. But he does say this, through them, you can grow to spiritual maturity. Secondly, true Christian faith is expressed through practical goodness. And it's just about that simple. All the way through, there is just, I mean, James is like reading, you know, the, the motto of, you know, have you seen that big poster of kindergarten rules? 
That's what James is. It's just that, that list of common sense that you teach in kindergarten that adults forget. Be nice to each other. You know, simple rules like that. And that's what you find in the book of James. True Christian faith is expressed in practical goodness to each other. Thirdly, good works is not a means to salvation. It is not how we get saved. Now, no matter how many good things we do, that will never get us into heaven. But good works is the product of salvation. You cannot say that God has come into your life and saved you and done all this wonderful thing stuff in your life and it makes no change in your life at all. If you are saved, there will be fruit from that. God will change your heart and your life and, and there will be works that flow from it, but those works do not get you anywhere in terms of salvation or going to heaven. It's just the fruit, it is the evidence that God has done a work inside of you and is starting to come out. And God wants to continually work in your life and my life so that the fruit of salvation continually comes out of our life. Faith justifies the man. Works justify the faith. Another theme is brotherliness in the midst of a very kind of stern book. Again, like Martin Luther had a real hard time even believing this book was scripture <laughs> because there was just too, he, he just thought it was too much works oriented. So in the midst of this stern book that tells us you've got to do this stuff and, and you can't just have faith, you've got to have some deeds in your life. James is the book that more than any other book, except for 1 Thessalonians, uses the phrase, my brothers. Now, the new NIV says, my brothers and my sisters, but we all get the picture, okay. Um, my brothers and my beloved brothers. That phrase is used more in James than anywhere else. There, there was a, this man, he loved his people that he cared for. He loved those Jews that were scattered all over, and he deeply cared for them. So there is, there is a love and a, com, a, a compassion there. And then there's 108 verses in the book of James, and there are 54 imperative commands. Do this. Do that. Believe this. Show yourself this. 54... That's exactly one for every two verses. You won't find that anywhere else. <laughs> maybe, maybe Proverbs would come close to that. But it's incredible that James just is one of those books that just says, do this, do that. Again, it's kind of like that kindergarten poster of just kindergarten rules for living. All of that. Now, four evidences. Um, that you and I are Christians, that come from the book of James. First, the endurance of temptation and trials. Impartial generosity, not showing favoritism, being good, generous with other people, controlling the tongue, and godliness in all things. I want to say to us today that God, one of the things that we learn from James is that God has a place for every one of us in his kingdom, regardless of who we've been, 
regardless of what we've done and regardless of how long it took us to get to faith in Christ. Jesus has a place for people who are radically different. James and Jesus were radically different people, and yet Jesus went to James and appeared to him first and made him the leader of the church at Jerusalem. (coughs) Secondly, Jesus calls us to set aside some of our personal convictions and preferences for the sake of seeing new people brought to faith in Christ. James, he never gave up any of those personal convictions. His lifestyle never changed. He was a Jew thoroughly. Till the day he died, he kept everything in the Old Testament, the dietary, the customary, the moral law of Moses. But he was able to give up his personal convictions so that Gentiles could come to faith in Christ. And sometimes there are things that you and I have really strong convictions on that are really personal and not really biblical that we need to mellow out on so that other people can come to faith in Christ. James was a model of that. And then, thirdly, James simply calls us to put our faith into practice. So I ask you, Where will your faith expose itself to in someone else's life this week? How will you manifest the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ as you work with someone else this week, as you talk with someone else this week? Let it come out. That's what the book of James says. It reminds us, The Christian life is not just theory. It's something that you and I need to do in concrete.